I want to welcome you back to week two of our series on Daniel. We're calling it Daniel Following God in Babylon. And, uh, and here's why we're calling it that, because we're, we're uh, diving into Daniel, because I believe that this book has so much to teach us as we journey through this cultural Babylon that we find ourselves in today. And last week, just to recap, we said this, we said that we all have values, and it's important for us to be able to clarify what those values are. And uh, as followers of Jesus, we should find our values in God and what he says, but the reality is maybe you're here today, maybe you're checking out God, maybe you're checking out church, and, and maybe you're not following God right now. And I just want you to know I'm so glad that you're here today because even if you're not following God, here's what I know about you, that even if you're not following God, you have values. And inevitably, your values are going to clash with the culture. And the question is how do we stay true to our values when they don't match our culture's values? And for those of us who are Christians, those of us who are believers, how do we follow God in the midst of a culture that does not have the same values as we do? How do we do that? How do we stay connected to God? How do we hold on to our godly values in this world that doesn't share the same values that we do? And around 2,600 years ago, there was this man named Daniel. He was a young guy who was living in his homeland in Jerusalem, and this evil king came and destroyed his land and forced him to live in this kingdom called Babylon. And it was the most powerful kingdom in the world underneath the most powerful king in the world. His name was King Nebuchadnezzar. And last week we said there comes these moments in life, that there'll come a moment in your life when the values that you grew up with no longer match the values and the culture of the world. Amen. And that's exactly where Daniel finds himself in the book of Daniel. And we asked this question last week. We asked the question, how do I follow God in the midst of a culture that doesn't see the same things the same way that I do? And we talked about this word, this really important word called compromise. And we said that, uh, as we talked about compromise, we said because there's going to come a time, there's going to come a time when our values clash with the world's values, and we're going to do one of two things. We're going to either compromise and give in to the world, or we're going to stay true to our values no matter what the consequences. And when Daniel was faced with compromise, here's what he did. He resolved in his heart that he was going to hold on to his values no matter what, and he was going to live with the consequences that came with that. And the encouragement for us last week was this. I encourage you at the end of our time last week to clarify your values, to know what your values are, and to resolve to be like Daniel and to be willing to hold on to those values no matter what the consequences and today, we're going to talk about another word, not compromise, but control. Everybody say control. control. And so control is a big deal, and it's a big deal in our lives because, well, we want to be in control, right? Like, we want to be in control of our circumstances. We want to have control of what's going to happen uh, to our future and in our present. But the reality is that more often than not, if we're really honest, more often than not, we're really out of control. 
And, and the world can spin us in a ton of different directions. And the world and its circumstances can get us sideways really fast. And we hear stories about this all the time. I don't know about you, but I hear stories and I have people, I've experienced it and I have people in my life that have experienced a time where life has spun them out of control. Like I have a friend right now that is my age. And, and just, a, just a month or two ago, he was working really hard. He was going to his kids' baseball games. And the next minute, he's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and is currently fighting for his life. Uh, I, I think of the Parsleys, who is uh, a family in our church, who had two failed adoptions. And then they went into the third attempt fearful that they might lose that one too. But they came out with a little miracle baby named Bo, who we dedicated just a few weeks ago. And there are cases, right, on both sides of the spectrum where it seems like life is spiraling out of control. And here's what we want to do. When that happens, we want to panic. And we tend to be filled with fear. And we tend to worry and we lose sleep and we're up at night wondering how we're going to control this uncontrollable situation. And in today's passage, we see an important theme that is so relevant to living in a world where it seems that we are less and less in control. And here's the truth, that God is in control of those who are in control. God is in control of those who are in control. And we call this, uh, in church world, we call this the sovereignty of God. It's a big word, sovereignty. We don't use it very often, but it just means this. It means that God is over all things that he sees all things, and that he is ultimately in control of all things. In other words, what I like to say is God is large and in charge. And he's large and in charge of even those things that see, and those people who seem to control us. You and I have scenarios in our lives where people have been in control of us, and things haven't necessarily gone our way, and today... We want to talk about how do we navigate through that? Like, how do we navigate through these moments where life seems to be out of control and where people that are in control of us are leading us in a direction we don't want to go? How do we react when it seems like there are people over us who have authority that are leading us in a certain direction that seems like my life is spiraling out of control? Like, for some of you, it may be a courtroom. It may be a courtroom view where a judge uh, is going to give you a verdict. It might be a verdict of guilty or not guilty, or it may be about different stipulations of how your life will look moving forward. But you're in complete out of control of your life, and the control is all solely on the judge. Or, Or some of you may have a teacher or an administrator that oversees a college application, and you have no control over that application. And you're under the control of someone else. Or maybe there's a boss who is in control of your career. And one of the most important things that we must keep in mind is that when it feels like everything is out of control, I want you to remember this. God is in control of those who are in control. And if that is true, and if we believe that, that God is in control of those who are in control then that should affect the way that we react when life throws us a proverbial curveball. And and think of it this way. 
And I've told you this many times. My family, we love roller coasters. We love going to theme parks. Like some people love to go to the beach. Some people love to go to the mountains for vacation. We love to go to theme parks. And we love to ride roller coasters. And we hope uh, to go to Cedar Point this summer. And, and ride the Millennium Force. And, and you go hundreds of feet in the air, and some of you are even sweating right now just thinking about it, like your heart just started racing a little bit, thinking about riding a roller coaster. But I love roller coasters. I love them because they take you through these death-defying experiences, but I get to do it willingly, right? Like I paid for that. I wanted to experience that. And it's so counterintuitive to think about it that way. Why would you willingly put yourself into scenarios that seem to be terrifying and yet exhilarating at the same time. Because you believe this, you believe that the roller coaster has a sense of control over your life. That it's gonna take you in a certain direction, that it's gonna stay on the track, that it's gonna keep you safe and you are gonna be okay when all is said and done. And, And the same is true for us, even though Even though it may seem like life is out of control, whether it's your health or your career or your future, it feels like it is out of control, you need to remember, you need to realize that God is in control of those who are in control. You got to remember that it's going to be okay, that it will eventually lead you to the place that God wants for you if you respond in the way that we are going to see Daniel respond in just a few minutes. You see, there have been many times in my life and many times where my life seemed to be spinning out of control. And yet, in the end, God was always in control. And the funny thing is, is that I can look back on those moments in my life where it seemed like everything was spinning sideways and those devastating scenarios in my life, and I can see now how God was in control the entire time. And Daniel chapter 2 is such a good reminder uh, for us that no matter what is happening in your life right now, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what you brought with you to Warehouse Church this morning, that God is in control. You see, you need to believe that. As believers, as followers of Christ, we need to believe that God is in control. And that, that truth That simple truth that God is in control should affect the way that you react when it seems like things are falling apart. So our question that we want to ask today is this question right here. How does knowing that God is in control change how we react when it seems that everything is out of control? If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you or, your, or the YouVersion Bible app to turn to Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. So Daniel's in the Old Testament, towards the end of the Old Testament, and, and I want us to see how this young man in this foreign land with foreign culture and foreign values that were completely opposite than his reacts in a way that we almost never react when things seem to be falling apart around us. And let me set the scene for you before we read. So remember, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king, the, the, the most powerful king of the time and the most powerful kingdom of the time, and he starts having these terrifying dreams, and these dreams are keeping him up at night, and he doesn't tell anyone what the dreams are, but he, the king calls his sorcerers or his wise men, if you will, to come and to interpret his terrifying dream, and so they come into the king's court, 
and they say, well, okay, king, tell us your dream and we'll interpret for you. We'll tell you what it means. And the king replies this time, and he's never done this before. He says, you know what? He says, I'm going to flip the script a little bit. He says, I'm not going to tell you my dream. Like, you're supposed to be the best of the best. You're the best sorcerers, the best wise men, the best magicians out there. And so if you're so wise, I want you not only to interpret my dream, but I want you to tell me what my dream was. You tell me what I dreamt, and you tell me the interpretation, and then I will be impressed. And the wise men, they're all looking at each other, and they're dumbfounded, and they're like, well, well King, uh, Almighty King Nebuchadnezzar, you're all powerful and all, but that's not how this works. This, see, remember how it works is you tell us the dream, and then we give you the interpretation. I mean, what you are asking, they say, only the gods can do. There's not a person alive, they say, that could do both of those things. Only the God in heaven, gods in heavens, could tell you what your dream was. And Nebuchadnezzar responds and says, since you can't do both, since you can't tell me my dream and then interpret my dream, I'm going to kill all of you. And so the sorcerers, they begin to panic. They're freaking out. They're like, no, you can't do that. And it's, it's really a, a, a kind of a big deal, but it's not a big deal, except for Daniel and his three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They were brought into Jerusalem, and now they're part of this group. And so Daniel, his life is on the line. Like things are spinning out of control, and he wasn't even a part of the conversation. He wasn't there when the king said that. And he went to school for three years and, 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 and to learn the ways of these wise men. And so while they weren't a part of the conversation, they were a part of the group that the king said, if you can't tell me my dream and you can't interpret my dream, you will die. And so as we begin in Daniel chapter 2, verse 14, we see the head of the military come storming into Daniel's house. And he is ready to execute the king's orders. And check out what Daniel says to him in verse 14. It says, When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. And let me ask you, how would you respond? Like, think about this for a minute. How would you respond if the head of the military busted down your, order, your doors with orders to kill you? You might jump out the window, you might try and escape, or you might draw your sword or grab your shotgun thinking, I'm not going down without a fight, right? Like, you might respond in many different ways, but Daniel, Daniel doesn't respond in any of those ways. He understood one thing. He understood that the reason he was in Babylon was that God wanted him there and that God was in control. You see, Daniel believed in all of his heart that God was in control. And so his reaction to this news was vastly different than what most of us would have done. Most of us would have run out the window. Most of us would have come out with an escape plan, but not Daniel. He asked, it says in verse 15, he asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Like Daniel's like, hold up, buttercup. He's like, wait a minute, let's push the pause button. Why is everyone in such a panic? Why is everyone in such a rush? Because Daniel recognizes that God is in control and he does something that those circumstance, in those circumstances that we don't typically do. He slows down. 
Daniel doesn't get freaked out. Daniel's heart doesn't begin to race. Daniel doesn't begin to shake his head and say, what you talking about, Willis? Daniel slows down and he asks the question, does this have to happen right now? Like, why is the king so urgent about this? Can we have a couple of days and maybe work this out? And we read on, and here's what it says. It says, Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. Verse 16, at this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time. He said, okay, king, let's slow down. Let me give, give us some time so that he might interpret the dream for him. And so Daniel slows things down. Daniel puts things in perspective. And he says, put me in front of the king, and I will give him the interpretation. You see, Daniel does this, and he doesn't even know the dream. He doesn't know the dream, and he doesn't have an interpretation. But in his wisdom, so Daniel doesn't have the answer, but in his wisdom, he took his time, and he bought a couple of days. And here's our first truth for today that I want you to know, that when people realize that God is in control of people who are in control, they respond rather than react. They respond rather than react. And what's the difference between responding and reacting? Well, reacting is often very emotional, right? Like here's what I know and what I've learned is that when I react rather than respond, I usually take a bad situation and I make it worse. That's what you do, right? Like when you react to a situation, some of you are already nudging people. You're like, yep, that's you. Don't do that. But when you react to a situation, that's emotional. And when we react to something, we usually make something worse rather than responding. You see, when people remember that God is in control of those who are in control and that verdict is coming your way or that administrator is going to give you a recommendation or that boss has your job hanging in the balance, when they realize that God is in control of those who are in control, they're able to slow down. And rather than reacting, they respond. And they don't let urgency take over and they say something like this, you know what? This might be a good thing. Like this might be a God thing. Like this might have been God's plan from the very beginning. And so in this moment, Daniel remembered. He remembered in Jerusalem and he remembered what the prophet Jeremiah said. And the prophet Jeremiah said, listen, Babylon is coming for you and God is the one sending them. And so he was able to respond rather than react. And he slows it down. He's like, let's all calm down here for a minute and let's figure out what God is up to. And that's exactly what he does. And look on in verse 17. It says, then Daniel returned to his house. So he's, got, he's bought himself some time. He returns to his house and he explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And he urged them, he urged his friends to uh, plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel tells his buddies, he's like, hey, listen, guys, uh, I told the king that I would have a vision for his dream tomorrow. Would you mind not praying with me and for me on this? Because at this point, I don't have a vision and I don't have an interpretation. So Daniel realizes, like, if I can just buy us a few days and let God show up and do what he wants, rather than react, let me respond. Because if I go in there and God doesn't tell me the dream, I'm going to die anyway. But what if he does show up? Daniel's like, what if God does show up? 
And what if he's really in control like I've been believing all my life? And what if he does tell us what the dream is and what the interpretation is? So he and his buddies, they pray. And they prayed because they realized that when life is out of control, we don't see things clearly, do we? But God sees everything crystal clear. And so when life spins out of control, we pray and we ask God to clarify things for us. And so verse 19 says, during the night. So that night after they prayed, it says, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision and that Daniel praised the God of heaven. And so have you ever had something like that happen before? Like, have you ever, where life has spun out of control, and it doesn't always happen, but you've been in a place where you seem, or things seem like they're out of control, and you go to God, and you pray to God, and you ask God for clarity. You say, God, if you could just clarify this for me, that would be great, and he did it. Like, have you ever had that experience where you prayed and God answered your prayer? Like, and, and, and all you want to do at the end of that is you want to give God thanks, you're like, thank you, God, so much for, for taking control of this situation. Thanks so much for showing me the way out of this. And we thank God. And that's exactly what Daniel did. God gave him the, the vision, gave him the interpretation, and he said, thank you, God. And that leads us to our next truth, which is this. When people remember that God is in control of those who are in control, they seek wisdom from God instead of worrying. And if you're in a place right now where you're not sure what the next thing is that you should do. I love what James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us in James 1.5. It says this, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you're not sure what to do, if life is spinning out of control, if you don't know what your next step is, James says, you should ask who? God. God. You should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. If you're in a place right now where you're not sure what's next, do what James, the half-brother of Jesus, said and ask God what you should do. You see, people who remember that God is in control, they go to God and they say, what's going on here, God? How should I respond to this? Not react, but how should I respond? How should I navigate this situation that seems to be spinning out of control? And he gives us that wisdom that we need, and he does it graciously and generously. So Daniel now has the vision and the interpretation because he asked God. He asked God, and what does he do with it? When life is spinning out of control and we paused and we've asked God for clarity and he gives us clarity, well, what do we do next? Well, Daniel, he goes to the, to the military leader, Arioch, and he tells him that he has the vision. He tells him that he has the interpretation, and Arioch tells the king, I have found a man who can tell you the dream and what it means. And the king then calls Daniel in. I mean, imagine the pressure. Imagine the pressure that Daniel is feeling as he is called in. This is life and death here. Like if he gets it wrong, just one detail wrong, King Nebuchadnezzar is going to take his life. And, he said, and King Nebuchadnezzar says, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And here's what Daniel says in verse 27. Daniel re replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God, capital G, in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. And here's the third truth that I want you to know. 
And the third truth is this. When people remember that God is in control of those who are in control, they are more faithful instead of fearful. They are more faithful instead of fearful. And when you get to that point where God clarifies for you what seems to be spinning out of control, that's what you do. You decide to be faithful to what God has shown you rather than to be fearful or afraid. And Daniel doesn't uh, take credit for what has happened. Daniel doesn't say, yep, I got it. I know what I'm doing. I'm the best wise man around. I've got all the magicians. Uh, I can do anything they can do, and I can do it better. That's not what he does. Instead, he sees it as an opportunity to point Nebuchadnezzar to God. And he puts the spotlight on God as the real source of wisdom and power. And it's time for Daniel to give the king his, his dream and also the interpretation. And if he gets it wrong, like I said, he's a dead man. And along with his friends and all the wise men in the kingdom. And so here's what Daniel says in verse 31. He says, your majesty looked. So he's telling about the dream. He says, your majesty looked and there before you stood this large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron. It feels partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And in that moment, King Nebuchadnezzar's jaw like dropped because he was amazed. He hadn't told a soul about his dream and Daniel got it right detail for detail. And he's like, Daniel, you must have a direct line to the gods because no other wise man could tell me my dream in such detail. And Daniel didn't react. He didn't slow down. He responded. He talked to God. God gave him the dream, but... What about the interpretation? Like, what does that mean? What did the dream mean? And, and Daniel breaks down the dream and tells the king what's going to happen in the latter days. So this dream is about what's happening in the near future, but also way down the road in the future, even in 2023. You see, here's what's fascinating about this dream is that you and I, we're a part of this dream that took place 2,600 years ago. We're a part of this dream. And the dream basically says this. It says that no matter what power exists in the world, that God is aware, that he is in control, and eventually his kingdom will come. So let me just read the interpretation, and we'll real quick just talk about it. Here's what it says in verse 36. Daniel's interpreting the dream now. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. He's like, you are the main man. You are the head of gold in the statue. And after you, he says, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. So it's made of silver, right? And then the next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And the Bronze Age, anyone ever heard of it? And then finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. 
And just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it. And even as you saw iron mixed with the clay, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with the baked clay, so people will be a mixture and will not remain united. And it sound familiar? Will not remain united and any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, or, or, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the, and the gold into pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, this is an important dream in the Bible, because the dream basically says that all other kingdoms will come and go, but only one kingdom will remain forever, and that kingdom is the kingdom of God. And what this stone, what, and, and what is the stone and the mountain that will destroy these kingdoms? It's the kingdom of God. And so if you look at history, the gold, King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, and you go through it and you look at silver and Rome and you look at the Bronze Age and you look at, at the clay and the iron, that's the world, that's, the, that's where we're at today. We're a mixture of clay and iron. We're a divided country and a divided world. And so when Jesus came, he did so to establish the kingdom of God. Jesus began to make this dream become a reality when he showed up. And he is the rock not made by human hands that the dream talks about. He is the rock that will never be destroyed. And when he returns, when Jesus returns, he will crush all other kingdoms and bring them to an end. But his kingdom will endure forever. And I don't know who's in control of you right now. I don't know uh, who makes you feel out of control, but the realization that you and I need to remember is that God is still in control. God knows what's gonna happen, and we can find peace knowing that God is in control of those who are in control. That just before Jesus was arrested and crucified, he tells the religious folk, he tells them a parable of a master in his vineyard. And he tells how the, the master or uh, 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 the owner of his vineyard, how he hires tenants to come and take care of his vineyards. Like he's like, I don't have time. I'm going back to the city, but I need you all to take care of my vineyards and I'll see you when harvest time comes. And so harvest times comes and he sends his servants to go and to get the fruits of the harvest. But the tenants... They see the servants coming and they beat them up and they send them away. And so the owner, frustrated after sending numerous servants to go and get the harvest, he goes, yeah, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. They won't harm my son. I'll send him to bring home the harvest. And when the tenants see that it's his son that is coming, they realize, you know what? We can kill his son and we can take control of the vineyard. And that's exactly what they did. And when Jesus tells this parable, he's talking about the religious leaders of the time and how they had rejected God's servants. 
They rejected Daniel. They rejected the prophets. They rejected uh, David. They rejected even Jesus. They rejected the servants, and they rejected his son. And check out what Matthew 21, 42 says. It says, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, Jesus, being this great stone, the one that was not made by human hands, came into this world. He died for you, and he died for me, and he began his kingdom here on earth. And eventually, eventually, Jesus will return. And let me just tell you, I feel like it's getting closer and closer because here we are in that clay and an iron divided age. And his kingdom is coming and he will establish his kingdom here on earth forever. And this was the plan, church, the entire time. What looked like chaos was actually Jesus fulfilling his plan as he closes his verse in the, these verses this way in 43 and 44. He says, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. He's talking to the religious leaders. Will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruits. He goes on to say, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And so the question for us this morning is this. Have you trusted in the stone that became the cornerstone. When our lives feel out of control, church, you have to remember that God is ultimately in control. You have a choice. You can either react or you can respond. You can either freak out or you can pause. You can either make bad decisions or you can ask God for wisdom. You can either be faithful to what God has called in your life or you can live a life of fear. You get the choice, it's all up to you. But the truth that never changes no matter what choice you make is that God is always, has always, will always be in. believe that church do you believe that God is in control even when your life seems to be spinning out of control he's in control he's got a plan he's got a purpose you just have to trust that he is in control will you trust and obey let's pray Father God I thank you so much for Daniel God I'm loving loving, 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 spending time getting to know this young man who, whose faith in you was so amazing. God, he believed in all of his heart that you were in control. He woke up every morning saying, God, you're large and in charge, and no matter what happens today, I know that you've got a plan and you've got a purpose for my life. But Father, what would it be like if we as your followers, we people who have said yes to you, we who say we believe in you, what would it be like if we believe that you are large and in charge in our lives? 
Like what transformation would happen in our lives if we truly believe that, that you've got a plan and you've got a purpose that no matter how out of control life seems to be right now, that you are still in the driver's seat. Father, would you help us to learn from Daniel and not to freak out and not to react. But Lord, help us to pause and help us to respond in a way where we seek wisdom from you. We don't look to the world for wisdom. We don't look to the world for what we do next. We look to you and we ask you for wisdom, believing that you are in control. Father, too many of us in this room, we don't really believe that. Like we're like, yeah, I believe in God, but yeah, I'm not so sure he's in charge. I'm not so sure he's in control. He's not answering my prayers the way I want him to. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. Lord, help us with our unbelief so that we might believe what the Bible tells us to be true, which is you have been, are, and will always be in control. We love you, Lord. And Father, if there's someone in this room today who's never given their life to you, that today would be the day that they would say, yes, Lord. Today would be the day that they would surrender their lives to you. Today would be the day that they would say, Jesus, I want you to be in control of me and my life. Lead me, guide me, direct me in the way because you know what's best for me better than I do. If that's you, if you're sitting there today, just say yes to Jesus. It's simple as just inviting Jesus into your life. It's saying, Jesus, I realize that I am lost. I realize that I am far from you, but I want to change that today. I want to experience freedom today. Would you come and be my Lord and my Savior? I'm putting my trust in you. Lead me. Guide me. Be my Savior. Just pray that prayer just right now. Just invite him in. You can even say, Jesus, I don't get it all. I don't understand what it all means. But I know one thing that I want to say yes to you today. Come. Come and be a part of my life. Father, we love you. Thanks for loving us in the many ways that you do. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, church, we're going to sing Amazing Grace as we wrap up our time together today. What a fitting song for uh, as we get to ready to celebrate our freedom and Fourth of July. But what a, what a great song to remind us of the grace that was given to us that allowed us the freedom, a free life from sin, the freedom to live our lives outside of sin. And that's only possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. So let's stand together, let's sing this. If you'd like to come and pray, uh, you're welcome to come and spend time in prayer up here at the altar area uh, while we sing. If you want someone to pray with you, I'm right here on the front row, tap my shoulder. I'd be happy to pray. Grab someone around you, say, hey, would you come pray with me? And just spend time before the Lord in prayer. So let's sing, let's pray, let's worship.